Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. I get a lot of my fashion from her and she would hand me a lot of her old clothes. So, you know, we never needed the conversation. I also never came out to my mum. Now I've had to a bit with like pronouns and stuff, but then I soon realised she was never going to get the pronouns. And so I've kind of like let that go. I got given a copy of Giovanni's Room when I was 15 by someone who I now realise was definitely being like an older gay and like helping me out. But at the time I didn't quite realise. I thought he was just someone that worked at the library. David Hoyle knows he's a hero of mine, but I feel like I've never publicly like used that word for him. What I find heroic and inspiring about Laverne Cox, and it's only since hearing her speak more about it, is like she really did change the game. And so I think all these people at this time were very formative in showing me like, being queer isn't just about like who you have sex with. You also can have a whole different way of thinking. My guest today is Travis Alabanza, an award-winning writer, performer and theatre maker. Their poetry was first published in 2015 in the anthology Black and Gay in the UK. As a performer, their work has been featured at Ducky, Bar Whatever, Late at Tate, the v and many other festivals and venues. Their shows include Burgers and Overflow. They also starred in a stage adaptation of Derek Jarman's Jubilee. Alabanza's book, None of the Above, describes their personal journey as a black queer person. Travis identifies as non-binary and their preferred pronouns are they, them. Though as you'll hear, actions mean far more to them than words. Hello Travis and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I've been so looking forward to having this conversation, especially since reading your book. Because your book made me think about a lot of things I hadn't really thought about in quite that way before. And one of them is, of course, the way in which language is so gendered. And I actually became quite obsessed about the title of this podcast because I thought, should it be called We Can Be Heroes stroke heroine stroke something else? Or should it just be called We Can Be Heroes? (laughs) Because they are gendered terms. So who was the first person that you'd like to nominate and why have you chosen this particular person? It can be anyone in the world, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for me, the first person, I guess, is a hero in the typical sense of the world, but would be my mum. And that sounds so corny to start off with your mum. but no, like, it doesn't. I wanted to, I, I can't not, like the book's dedicated to her. Um... I've dedicated all my work to her. I just think that she's she's a hero. I think that I have a particular like pride in retrospect about her, just now understanding the way the world works and thinking like, wow, to be an immigrant in this country raising two kids on your own unexpectedly and to do it 
uh, with such kindness is something that I really now realise I shouldn't have taken for granted. And so, yeah, she's my hero. Corny, corny star. No, it's not. It's not at all. When you were younger, when you were, say, a teenager, were you one of those teenagers who were sort of rebelling against your mum and not really appreciating your mum? Yes, completely. I wasn't allowed to be rude to her because, you know, I would have been kicked out. But I would definitely, like, you know, I partied from a very young age, lied to her all the time about where I was going. You know, from about 15, I don't think I spent a weekend at home for, like, a year and a half. Like, I was just at the club all the time and uh, telling her I was at sleepovers, just lying non-stop. And uh, yeah, didn't kind of give her the grace that she may have been able to hack some of the conversations. Um, But now like our relationship is, our relationship was always good, but now we're like friends. And I really have started to appreciate like the the sacrifices I think she made, you know? I had a similar conversation with Bernadine Evaristo because she also talked about her mum. And we got talking about my mum When I was a teenager, which is a long time ago, I was expressing myself. I wasn't out at all, but I was expressing myself through my appearance. So I was actually very, very, very ambiguous looking gender wise. I used to wear dangly earrings and makeup and stuff. And my mum really freaked out about that because living in a small town in South Wales, it was really, really not the normal thing to do in in 1980, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it really freaked her out. How did your mum, how has your mum's relationship been with your gender and the way you've expressed yourself over the years? I think that's why I love that you started with language. Like, I feel like if she was on Twitter, she would have been like thrown off of Twitter a million times and called like, uh, (laughs) you know, called all the names under the sun. I feel like if she was at a queer club, she would probably also be kicked out. But it's so interesting because like, you know, she's 67 uh, and... I've never felt anything but love and support from her. And I've never felt anything but someone that wants me to just be myself. Like, I've started wearing dresses from a very young age and I started expressing, like, gender nonconformity in a big way. And uh, she would always just, like, kind of... Her comments were always more like, well, if you wear that top, it's going to make your shoulders look bigger. Like, she wasn't she wasn't trying to, like, stop me from doing it. She was more focused on me looking a bit better than I was. And I get a lot of my fashion from her and she would hand me a lot of her old clothes. So, you know, we never needed the conversation. I also never came out to my mum. Now I've had to a bit with like pronouns and stuff, but then I soon realised she was never going to get the pronouns. And so I've kind of like let that go and instead just been like her actions are like love, you know? But yeah, she would, she was like, Travis, do you think I should get Twitter? I was like, absolutely fucking not, mum. You know, it, it will come back to me, not a, not a chance. But yeah, she's been good, she's been good. Although now she's doing this thing where she genders all of my other trans friends correctly, but doesn't gender me correctly. Yeah, oh my God, she, it, it was <laughs> it was actually funny. Me, my brother lives in America and we met up for the first time since the pandemic as a free. And my mum was like using they pronouns for my brother the whole time. And my brother paused and he went, Mum, I think it's hilarious. Travis has been asking about this for years, but you're veying me. And she goes, oh, I don't know which one of my sons is what nowadays. <laughs> oh, that's really lovable, actually. That's kind of lovable. It's, oh, it's gorgeous. Like, I think, you know, I understand why some people need language to help them. And, and, and you know, I'm never, ever going to comment on other people, what they find helps them feel safe and seen. But for me, language is like a a limited way to show respect. 
And uh, it's not what I look for. I look for the actions and I look for like how they show it, you know? I remember my mum saying to me, if you pierce your ears, I'm going to throw you out. So I pierced my ears and it was like, <laughs> if you colour your hair, I'm going to throw you out. I coloured my hair. If you wear makeup, I'm going to throw you out. I wore makeup. She didn't throw me out. So the action speaks yeah, much louder yeah. than the words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well. Is your mother still with us? Yes, yeah, she is. She's in decline now. She's got Alzheimer's. She was a, a single mum for a part of my childhood. It took me until I was a lot older to appreciate just how brave she was because she yeah. was incredibly brave. David McAlmont, who was also on the podcast, talked about his mum a lot. And he said something really interesting, which is that he said that we all talk about when we come out, but we don't talk about when we go in. And that often family is way ahead of you. And many young queer kids go in because they suddenly realise that their behaviour mm. and the way they're expressing themselves isn't acceptable to society. Mm. Was that a battle for you? I think what was the issue was my version of going in was still really out for everyone else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, I remember I went through this era of being like, this is me like trying to fit in. And I look back at photos and I still look like a Dalston Gaywood now. So like, yeah, it no, it didn't really happen for me. I think that it's hard, I think, when you're like, because I thought I was a woman for a long time. So I was kind of living that life for a while like you know putting in a lot of effort into like trying to look like a woman and then like 15 16 and so then me going back in was me not doing that but I was still like looking like a fucking punk androgynous whatever so my version of going in was like braids down to my ass and like you know big piss so yeah no I didn't uh but in my head I did but externally, I didn't. Well, your mum sounds like one in a million. It's been really yeah. interesting, actually, how often mums have come up in the conversations I've had, because I've done at least 15 of these now, and I think mums have come up at least five times, usually as the first person that the person nominates. It was Bernadine's first person as well. It was David's first person. Mm. And I think that's obviously because they're probably the first hero that you have because they're yeah. the person that raises you. Yeah. My mum is certainly a hero of mine, I realise now. I didn't realise it when I was younger. I was always at loggerheads with her. Yeah. I look back now and I think, God, I was unbearable when I was a teenager, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. taking, well. taking Morrissey as a role model was never a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but that's wonderful. Who is the next person that you'd like to talk about with me? I'd love to talk about David Hoyle. This is not about plugging the book. Obviously, there's a chapter, like, that's his quote in the book. But that's because he is a hero of mine. Like, that came first. David Hoyle knows he's a hero of mine, but I feel like I've never publicly, like, used that word for him. But uh, when I was younger, I uh, was in drama, like, doing drama, you know, like every other queer. And uh, I remember I felt like I was ahead of the class. I was so annoying and I felt like I could rewrite the curriculum for my teacher that had trained and studied. I was a dickhead. But one of the things that came out of it was that she said, well, if you, if you want to like, you know, teach so much, go and research your own section of performance and come back to me, like go research and tell me, you know. And I went away and I started researching like queer performance. Without those words, I was just using like well, I think I typed in, like, London Alternative Performance or something like that, and scrolled through loads of stuff and found Divine David. 
you know, and I wasn't from London, I come from Bristol. And so I got hooked and I was obsessed and I like couldn't stop watching these videos. Were these the Channel 4 videos that he did? Channel 4 videos, then there was stuff of him in the club as well. Just, I watched everything. Like, there was Channel 4 videos, then there was him going around, like, a national portrait gallery, like, showing people around. Yeah. Then there was, like, this weird TV thing where, like, he's doing a fake advert. Um, then it was stuff of him in the club, and that got me hooked, because in Bristol, the only performances I'd seen in clubs were kind of, like, drag queens doing a sing-song. And so I didn't know that there was this, like, club performance world where you could, you know, not just sing a song, but you could do, like, weird performance shit or speak to the audience or just chat, you know what, however you describe David Hoyle's shit. And that led me to, like, researching Le Gatto Chocolat and Scotty and all these, like, queer performers I suddenly became, like, obsessed with. And um, was definitely one of the reasons I moved to London, really, to become a, a performer was, like, I was, like, oh, there's all this bigger world outside of the West Country and, like, there's this other stuff and... I really count David as one of those people for like showing me that, yeah. I first met David in, I think it must have been about 1991 or maybe even 1990, early 90s anyway, and I'd gone to Manchester and a friend of mine said, you must come and see this guy called the Divine David. He was doing bingo on a barge, just hosting a bingo show <laughs> and looking like a sort of decomposing Liza Minnelli, you know. And I didn't really understand just how extraordinary he was at the time and then he came to London it was around the time that Ducky began and at the Vauxhall Tavern but there was a pub opposite it called the Elephant and Castle that was a really rough drag pub like really rough and he used to perform there and he would come on stage usually in quite an altered state and he would rant against gay conformity and sportswear and the whole look of the time people used to jump on stage and assault him I mean, it was actually wow. really, really punk. And he used to cut himself with bottles and things like Iggy Pop used to. And it was really in your face. And now I see him and you see he's got this huge devoted Lord. following. But when he started, yeah. he really wasn't. Pe people were really, really angry about what he was saying. Yeah, he's such, yeah, so brave and always stuck true to his, like, belief. And, like, doesn't give a shit about saying it. I remember we went to, so we started performing together, like, from... I think 2016 he first invited me to perform with him and then we toured, we went to Macedonia and performed at Macedonia Pride together. And I remember like understanding the climate of Macedonia and you know what was safe for us to say and not say and I remember just learning from David, I was only 20 I think at the time and was getting new to touring and maybe there was a risk of becoming a bit uh, la-di-da about it. And what I saw with David is, like, the first thing he did off of coming off the plane was meet with the local activists, understand what was going on in their community, to then bring it up on stage. And it was such a lesson in, like, how to be an artist and, like, how to actually, like, care and give a shit. Yeah, I think he's amazing. I'm so glad that he's got this, like, following now. Like, I hear about, he's told me these stories as well about him personally, like, not always being loved in that way. And I just think he deserves it all, you know. I think he's great. I remember seeing, I can't remember what year it was now, but it would have been the mid-90s, he killed off the Divine mm. David on ice at Streatham Ice Arena, killed off the character, and had a very public breakdown. You know, he was quite open about the fact that he had a breakdown. And he went back to Manchester and went quiet for a few years and then re-emerged as David Hoyle. 
Mm. And initially, the look was very natural. He was just looking like David Hoyle. And then slowly, the look started to creep back, <laughs> back up again. I've loved watching his journey, and I love watching him with an audience, especially when I take people who've never seen him before and they don't know what to expect. He is so on a tightrope. It's like someone walking yeah. a tightrope with no safety yeah. net, isn't it? Yeah, and it's so beautiful like to see it happen live because you can see people's expectations just be turned and go from laughter to being challenged, especially some of those, like, I guess now, like, it's his, like, following, but I've seen him do shows where it's, like, you know, the audience are very much the people he's then critiquing and watching how he, like, dips in between that is just, like, really cool and, uh, yeah, I'm a bit obsessed with it. I think it was probably, certainly when he was the Divine David, so it would have been, you know, mid-90s, that he used to always come on and say, good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and those who don't believe in gender. So he's always been ahead of the curve in that sense. Nobody else was talking like that, that I was aware of at that time. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, it makes it chic. You know, people often like say, well, how do we get the right language? And I always quote David, because I'm like, it's the only, it's the only introduction that still sounds kind of punk. You know, everyone's coming up with all these different inclusive ways to like, uh, you know, say ladies and gentlemen. And David already had it sorted and it still sounds hot. You know, some of these new ways of saying it, I'm like, God, I get it. This is the right thing to say, but we do sound terribly unhot. <laughs> David Bowie, who is one of my heroes and also one of David's heroes, I know. There's a very famous clip of David Bowie off his face on cocaine at the Grammy Awards in 1975. And he comes on and he says, good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and others, which was at the time set a ripple through the audience. And of course, now would probably not sound quite so cool because yeah, it sounds right, like you're othering right. people, you know, but mm, at the mm. time it was quite radical, actually, I think. Mm. Tell me a bit about your work you did with David. What was the show? Before writing and stuff, I used to perform in the clubs a lot more than I did now. So David had a producer called Nick at the time who um, used to basically come to my shows at the RVT and was like, I think we should do this thing where we you know, platform a newer artist at the same time as doing our show. So for a while, David would invite me to his kind of monthly residency. At, at the time, that was at the Working Men's Club. And we would, um, I would be his opener for the show. And so I get to do like 15 minutes alongside David's show. And I don't think at the time I let him know how much I was a, a, a big fan. It wasn't until years later, after I'd done burgers and stuff, we were invited by an arts institution to interview each other. And I think that's on YouTube. And I was like, okay, now I have to sit down and tell him. Like we've toured, we toured to different places together. We'd done different prides. We'd gone to Macedonia, like, you know, met in an Istanbul airport in a smoking area and then gone to Macedonia together. We'd done all of this. Now's maybe the time I should tell him that I'm quite a big fan. And previously between then, I've been doing the boring thing that I've now learned to stop doing of like trying to be like aloof and professional about it instead of just like, you know, letting them know, like, actually, you mean loads to me. But I was too freaked out. Like it felt too, um, you know, there's people that you enjoy their work and then you get to work with them. But this person I literally like had written my like GCSE drama stuff about and like forced my class to learn about. And it felt a bit too, um a bit too overwhelming to be like, oh, and here I am interviewing him. But I think I just said it on stage. I was like, I want this recorded in the YouTube archive. So I think I said on the YouTube interview that's online, I said, I just need to let you know before we do this interview, David, that 
you know, for this whole time, I've been a very, very, very huge fan. And 16-year-old me was, like, really inspired. I, I, I think I just didn't... I thought when I was younger that the only way to be on stage was to be an actor. And I kind of had given up. Too young, obviously, to give up on something. But at 16, I already figured out in my head, oh, to be an actor, you have to know someone rich or be rich or... And then to find David Hoyle and realise that you could perform in other ways... It just blew my mind. And, like, I don't really think I would be... Well, I know I wouldn't be here writing and making a living off of being an artist if I didn't find the clubs. And in some ways, I didn't find the clubs without finding David. So it is, yeah, it really is, like, a pivotal moment, you know? Do you think he encouraged you to be brave? Yes. And rude. I think, like, when I look at a a lot of my shows now, you know, like, uh, Burgers is quite challenging and treading that line and you know I say in the in the credits of Burgers I acknowledge David Hoyle and other live performance artists but you know in Burgers I bring a white man on stage and you know for the whole hour we're balancing this very tiptoey line of like friends and foe and all of that is from David's watching David do the same with his audience and it just made me realize that like performance is so much more interesting when you're risking something not just, like, telling your story. That's fine. People want to do that, that's fine. But, like, what more are you doing but telling your story? Are you also, like, risking something, challenging something? And David's always doing that too, you know? Yeah. And he still is. That's what's so amazing yeah. is that he's still doing it. You know, he hasn't lost his edge. If anything, it's gotten more edgy now because he's still speaking about money and what the government do. And we're in a time where... A lot of artists, you know, myself included, have to, like, dangle an interesting dance of, like, where we sell ourselves to. And David has kind of refused that this whole time. He really does have a very, very punk ethos, that very do-it-yourself ethos that came from punk and also the the lack of compromise. Yeah. He's very uncompromising. Yeah. Which I know some people find challenging, but from an artistic and creative point of view and as an audience member, there's something so exciting about watching somebody knowing that they're not compromising. For real, for real. Okay, that's wonderful. Who is the next person you'd like to nominate? Yeah, my next hero is James Baldwin. Do you know what? It's all soppy babes, isn't it? You can't really talk about your heroes without being soppy, isn't it? But like, I got this kind of trail from, like, my mum and then David. I was like, okay, these are all people that have, like, started things for me. And uh, I think James Baldwin got me into books, like, actually. I was reading before that, but then I got given a copy of Giovanni's Room when I was 15 by someone who I now realise was definitely being, like, an older gay and, like, helping me out. But at the time, I didn't quite realise. I thought he was just someone that worked at the library. But now I'm, like, realising it was, like, a gay librarian being cool. And he kind of dropped me a copy of Giovanni's Room. And I'd been reading before, but I finished that book and my whole mind was like, what the fuck? Uh, I can't believe that we are allowed to write like this and think these thoughts. And, um, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, it sounds like there's a running theme, but I guess I didn't really realise until saying it out loud. Just 15 to 17-year-old me was, like, so aware of... I was over, like, my sexuality. Like, I I knew that I was, like, not straight. 
and I was bored of like thinking about that, I was just wondering what else there was to being queer. And so I think all these people at this time were very formative in showing me like being queer isn't just about like who you have sex with. You also can have a whole different way of thinking. And I found that James Baldwin's work did all of that for me. I'm also a huge Baldwin fan. And actually, I'm just editing an episode of this podcast with Louisa Young. She also talks about James Baldwin and she is a white middle class Londoner and straight. And, and she just says yeah. his work speaks to everybody. Yeah. And that there's something about him that he, he was almost he was almost exploring intersectionality before the word was coined. You know, it's, oh. it's all there, isn't it? Oh, 100%. I mean, I started with his novels, but then when I got into uni, I started to read, you know, a lot more of his essays and more of his, like, Afro-pessimism and short stories. But even in his novels, he was talking about this stuff. And and again, it, I think it keeps on going back to language. I feel like he was talking about it without having to say a lot of these words. You could just feel it. Like, I don't know, I love another country so, so much. And I feel like... Yeah, his, for me, his novels were like political manifestos too, you know? I was given a copy of Giovanni's Room by a friend of a friend or the older brother of a friend. And I kind of knew that I was gay, but I hadn't done anything about it and I hadn't told anybody. And <laughs> it, it completely blew my mind when I read that book. And like you, I read the novels first and then I went and read the essays and I've been obsessed with him ever since. He was so fiery and also so kind and so mm. forgiving. He refused to hate white people, which I thought was fascinating yeah, yeah. given the fact that he had every reason to. And instead he like pushed for, I think something that was more intellectually interesting and, and useful for him at the time. I feel like now he's like put on every reading list and da 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 da. Was he like always that successful like through the time? In the eighties, when I came out, I came out in nineteen eighty-five. I wasn't wildly aware of him. It wasn't until years later that I saw the footage of him in those debates and how extraordinary he was, because he was literally thrown into a lion's den and he just won the debate, like hands down. He just demolished the guy, and he was just so brilliant. And then seeing these chat show clips that I'd never seen before, and how he was often being patronised. He would never get bristly or aggressive. He would just respond by going higher. He would always respond by going higher. And he was such a wonderful lesson in how to, because I was always somebody as an activist who was just like spoiling for a fight all the time, you know? Right, real, yeah. <laughs> and to see him, it was like, there's another way of doing this. It's, it's the whole go high thing. And that actually often is, is the way to win. It's amazing how so many of the things that he was talking about and saying 50, even 60 years ago, so much of what he was saying then becomes more and more and more pertinent with each passing year. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. some of those quotes, you're like, this could have been, uh, you know, written right now. I remember, like, obviously we were inside but the, when the June 2020 happened and it was, you know, so such an intense time, I think. I was so confused in a lot of my thoughts because I was seeing all these huge protests and being excited by that, but also being really confused by the moment. And we were obviously also in a pandemic. And I remember just going to him, his writing and it giving a clarity of thought that I was like, it's as if he is writing it right now, watching us all watching this. But of course he wasn't. And I, and I yeah, that's a, a big skill of a writer to be able to distill it like that, you know. 
the film that they made, I'm Nobody's Negro film. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's such a powerful, powerful yeah. piece. It's so inspirational. I think everyone needs to watch that film if they haven't, actually. It's one of those things that should yeah. be required viewing for everyone. Yes, exactly. I'm very pleased we talked about James. James is also someone who's come up a few times, hardly surprisingly, given that his impact is so enormous and his reach is so wide. Each of the people that have talked about him, you're the third, wow. said different things about him. And I'm glad. And different kinds of people, different kinds of people, you know, that universal impact. I mean, it is that great, that's how you know you're a great writer. You know, if you can distill past it all and get to that, the centre core of what how people feel, you know. What do you think of the qualities in particular about him that inspired you? I think for me it was like, even though I hadn't maybe read up on my history as much yet, I could tell that what he was doing felt dangerous. I could tell that what he was doing, like, I think what links a lot of people that inspire me is that they can feel the danger of what they're doing and yet they know that it's far more important to put it out there than to stop at the first sign of danger. And I could see that what he was writing was really daring to do it at the time, because it would still be daring to write that now. And that as he became, you know, more known and more published, he continued to stay true to what his message was. And he was unflinching in that, I felt. And like David, refused to, like, distill it because of someone else. And I think, for me, when I was younger, and still now, but, you know, I think now I'm much better at holding true to myself. But when I was younger, I, I was very aware of, like, what being myself would possibly bring. And not only, like, aesthetically, but even just, like, politically. Like, I grew up in the suburbs of Bristol in, like, a place that had been a Tory government for, like, 50 years, like, Tory MP for 50 years. Uh, I fought differently to a lot of people around me. Not everyone. I think I was probably a wanker, too, and thought that everyone was you know, much sillier, whatever, you know, but also, I, you know, like, people were rude about immigrants, and people were, you know, not always kind about people that weren't working, and all these things, and from a young age, probably because of my mum, I just didn't believe that, and I constantly was coming up against this question of, like, it will be easier to change your beliefs, or it'll be easier to change your clothes, or it'll be easier to stop doing this, or stop saying out loud, or don't stick up for that person, or don't do that, and you'll have an easier time. And I think a lot of my inspirations were people that constantly reminded me that the easier time doesn't always make you feel best, you know? And James definitely did that. He still does. It's interesting that there's a thread here to do with courage and daring and being true to yourself, which are qualities that clearly mean a lot to you. Is there anyone else you'd like to discuss? So I have one more that's written down. And actually, maybe this is good because it's maybe a little less, uh, like, if those two are punks. I'm not sure I'd describe this next person as punk. Um, actually, I definitely wouldn't, but it's Laverne Cox. Fuck it, throw a movie star in there. But I think for modern day, what I find heroic and inspiring about Laverne Cox, and it's only since hearing her speak more about it, is like she really did change the game. Do you know? Like for me, like she, I'm sure there's cycles, but she was definitely a definitive person in this new cycle of like trans, you know, I don't want to say visibility, more like trans 
employment really in the arts uh, um, and trans people working and being seen as like viable people to create roles for and, and stuff and I feel like she also is really really good at visibly opening the doors for other people and I think that that has been like quite inspiring for me that she didn't wait to get to a certain level she always was like visibly talking about other people and opening them up and it was a real reminder to me to you don't have to wait to get to a certain level to open doors you constantly want to be part of that like system of like opening for people and yeah I remember watching her like less her acting and more like her advocacy around it all that just really inspired me I think she's a boss she's a boss I first saw her in Orange is the New Black. That whole character arc of that character was just fascinating. And then how eloquent she was when she talked about the issues affecting her and her yeah. employment. She's in the documentary Disclosure as well, isn't she? Yeah, she, yeah, She's yeah, yeah. really well in that. Incredible in that. I can see how she would be an inspiration to many people. Having the platform that she has must be helping so many people who are growing up maybe in small towns. Yeah, and I, and I feel like this always happens, I mean, you probably know it more than me, of like, you know, the cycles change and then the new wave of people come in and people kind of forget. And I think with trans stuff, that happens even quicker because there was so few and then there's suddenly this huge boost. And I feel like she she never still gets her like credit over time of being like, you know, people think now it was always like this. And actually, it wasn't really that long ago that it wasn't like this at all. You know, she's not that old in terms of, like, her impact. And so much has changed in, like, seven years. And so I think, yeah, I'm always about, like, remembering the credit to her to being such an instrumental force in that in that shift, you know? And definitely for me, like, I think watching her, I was like, okay, this is, like, possible you can do this, you can like move in these ways. Love her. So she's maybe my glam, glam exit. Not that David Toy wasn't glamorous. A different kind of glamour. She's maybe my one that wouldn't be smoking in a dressing room after the show. Can't quite imagine her doing that. <laughs> oh, this has been wonderful, Travis. Thank you so much. I've really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. I've had so much fun. I've been wanting to chat to you for so long. So uh, I was really glad when you asked me. Thank you. My thanks to Travis for being such a great guest. And to find out more about their work, please visit their website, travisalabanza.co.uk. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is Sue Tilly on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. I know it's very boring and obvious, but I've got to say Lee Bowery. You know, he's the person who's completely shaped and changed my life. You know, they're obsessed with Benny Hill in Italy and that. People used to shout Benny Hill at him down the street. I've got a picture in a book where Benny Hills... It's a book by Beryl Reed. Benny Hills in drag. You would swear on your life that it was Lee. A lycra wasn't invented, so the bikinis were very sort of baggy. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>